Welcome to all you listeners and writers out there who've ever contemplated writing about your upbringing, your youth, your early days, your childhood. Welcome to another episode of Right Minded. I'm Brooke Warner, and I'm here with my very right-minded co-host, Grant Faulkner. And Grant, we talk so much on this show about genre, and we specifically spend a lot of time on memoir and fiction. And somehow in this nearly five years of podcasting, we've never homed in on coming-of-age memoir. And I think about it. And I I guess that's just because it was too obvious, you know, like some things are just so in front of us and present that we kind of forget they're there. Yeah, that's entirely startling, I think, in some ways. Um, Because coming of age stories are among the most common to the point that I sometimes wonder if all stories are coming of age story in their way, perhaps. But speaking more specifically of the genre, I think the coming of age memoir is is perhaps the most celebrated of all subgenres of memoir, at least. So, So I'm curious if you agree with that, Brooke. I do. And I think it's because some of the most popular memoirs of all times are coming of age memoirs. I mean, I'm thinking of Frank McCourt's Angela's Ashes, Mary Carr's The Liars Club, Jeanette Walls's The Glass Castle, uh, Augustin Burroughs' Running with Scissors. I mean, this list goes on and on. Tobias Wolf, J.R. Moringer. Uh, and then there are the more modern celebrated books, ones that I've been loving lately. K.S.A. Layman's Heavy, uh, Ashley Seaford's Somebody's Daughter. This book, Solito by Javier Zamora, is getting tons of attention. And that list also goes on and on. Uh, And today's guest, Yasmin Azad, has written a coming-of-age memoir called Stay Daughter that we're going to talk about. And so, yes, it's celebrated and well-loved, and I think for good reason. And for those of us not so steeped in the world of memoir, Brooke, I'm curious if you can define what a coming-of-age memoir is or should be so that we're not using my definition that every book is a coming-of-age story in its way. (laughs) Yeah, uh, exactly. As the name implies, coming-of-age stories cover a particular time period, so usually you'll see coming-of-age memoirs starting in childhood and ending somewhere in the author's late teens or early 20s. But there's a wide range there. Memoir is slice of life, and so it could just cover the teen years, or it could start in young teenhood and end in the author's 20s. Uh, And I'm thinking about the Glass Castle, for instance, which takes Jeanette Walls almost to, I think, either her very late 20s or early 30s. And that's very specifically because I think at the end of the book, she wants us to see this short part where she sees her parents through an adult lens. And so I think there are choices that can be made and people who can kind of step outside of the boundaries, you know, the confines of like what we might see as perfect coming of age. Uh, and then occasionally there are, well, as you said, all our coming of age to a sort because you will see people doing coming of age memoirs in their later years because it might be like a second coming of age story and that could be an author exploring coming out as gay perhaps or having another kind of spiritual awakening or a life-changing moment I think that those books actually are coming of age stories Uh, you know typically yes you're going to see them being younger in life but you know I, I think that there's some room to wiggle there And typically it's, you know, anywhere from age five to 30 or somewhere in between. Yeah, that's helpful. And, you know, when I was uh, thinking about coming of age stories and what makes them so popular and universal, I, of course, you know, I think most about fiction that informed my life. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of novels I read as a teen and college student, and they were very typical novels of that time, like A Separate Piece or The Great Gatsby or Catcher in the Rye. And I have to say that that listing these three novels makes me think of how the form 
was perfect for that era of, you know, especially that era of young white privileged, you know, lads who <laughs> faced the world and rebelled against their parents and things like that. Um, and I suppose Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar might fit into that list as well. But, you know, to broaden the definition, the form is essentially like a cocoon. And that cocoon is whatever youth is, whether it's comfort, convention, or chaos. And then a person coming out into themselves, into a more aged and self-defined self. So it's an appealing genre because it's about the reaction to conflict, uh, you know, the reckoning with change and the discovery of a truer and more valid self, which we all went through to some degree, I think. And I'm assuming memoir feels uh, that same, exact same space. And Brooke, you've, you've, you've talked about this a bit on previous shows, speculating about whether certain novels are published today might instead be memoirs. And I would say this particularly pertains to coming of age stories, you know, and I'm thinking specifically of authors like Judy Bloom, who's had a bit of a resurgence lately due to, to the movie or Erica Jong's fear of flying. And we actually asked Erica that question of whether that book would have been a memoir. Um, and she kind of skirted the answer to that. <laughs> uh, but with memoir being so popular today in the way it wasn't 30 or so years ago, uh, you have to wonder and Brooke, you know, fiction or memoir categorizations aside, what is it about coming of age memoirs that make them so popular? Yeah, I think it's that resonance thing that coming of age is somewhat resoundingly universal because we've all grown up <laughs> and growing up is hard. You know, even privileged folks go through the ringer uh, and good coming of age stories shine light onto those journeys and they give insights into experiences that are similar or different, right? I mean, I equally love the books that are very similar to my experience as I do the ones that are so far flung that I can't even imagine these people's lives. And I remember sharing on another episode a while back how much the book Go Ask Alice really rocked my world when I was young. And, and part of that was because the protagonist's experience was so outside of my own. And that actually helped me to experience some actually much deeper understandings and complexities about growing up that weren't specific to my own experience. Movies do this, of course, too. So that's just important to note. And it's why we all love a good coming of age film. And, and they don't get old. So there's that too. Uh, and I'm curious, Grant, what are some of the novels, you know, other than the ones you mentioned uh, from your youth that might have been like game changers in this space? Because I was thinking about Stephen King's Stand By Me, which I think is actually a short story. And then um, is there a male equivalent to Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Maybe it is Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> I don't know, but now I want to research it because, yeah, I think uh, there should be a male equivalent to that novel. And the question actually makes me does want to explore different types of coming age of age stories and how they form us. Because just in the course of the conversation, I've been thinking of the question of gender and so many stories about boys are about them seeking to get away from their communities, to strike out on their own, to be free, just like Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer in Adventures of Huckleberry Finn uh, by Mark Twain or Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce. So, so self is defined in a type of opposition of not belonging. And I wonder how how that storyline either mirrors or forms the psyche of, of young boys. And I have to admit, I found that trope appealing, but I think there mu must be other kind of more interesting ways to tell uh, different coming of age <laughs> stories. And I, I like to think of the coming of age stories that I don't even think of coming of age stories. And perhaps that's because I read them as adults, but I'm thinking of My Brilliant Friend by Lana Ferrante, which shows a character's coming of age through the lens of an intense friendship and then the working class community that she grew up with or the main character grew up with in, in Naples. And then 
on Earth were briefly gorgeous by Ocean Vuong, which is a letter to his mom trying to explain his homosexuality, his life as an immigrant, and his life as her son. And I guess you might say there are two types of fiction coming-of-age stories. You know, there's the YA coming-of-age story and then the adult looking back on one's youth. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And I'm, I'm glad you were talking about this, just about the gendered part and the privileged part, because historically, and obviously we talked about this on the show a lot, you know, that privileged white male perspective really has made up the literary canon. Uh, and of course, you know, Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret is a classic. It's a book that I love, uh, that many, many people love, and it will forever be a white girl's story. Um, and I love that kids today are coming of age with that story, but also other stories, right? Like, because I know, like, when we were growing up, and many of our guests have spoken to this too, if you weren't white or straight, you had really few models for coming-of-age stories. Uh, maybe I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou is one, uh, and a handful of others. But now we have so many stories by writers of color, international writers, other writers on the margin, uh, and we've seen a number of coming-of-age stories lately that are about immigrants uh, growing up elsewhere. I mentioned that because that's the story uh, today. Our uh, guest author grew up in Sri Lanka. And I mentioned Solito earlier, which is just getting a ton of attention about a boy's journey of crossing the border alone. Uh, and then I also wanted to call back to Louis Chude Soto. Okay, <laughs> a complicated last name to say, but uh, he also wrote a fabulous book about growing up in Jamaica and the States by way of Nigeria. And so just to note that um, we always love to mention people to go back and listen to those episodes because they're fabulous and um, have a lot of longevity. Uh, and today's guest, as I said, Yasmin Azad, she has written a really incredible book grant. I'm excited to share her and her story with our listeners. And we're going to do exactly that right after this short break. Welcome back, everyone. Today we have Yasmin Azad on the show, and Yasmin is from Sri Lanka and was among the first group of girls in her Muslim community to go away from home to pursue a university degree. After obtaining a BA in English, she married and moved to the United States, where she raised three children and worked as a mental health counselor. Her writing has been published in Solstice Literary Magazine, the Massachusetts Review, and elsewhere. And the memoir we're going to be talking about today is Stay Daughter, a memoir of Muslim girlhood. Yasmin, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're absolutely thrilled. And I loved your book. Uh, I'd love to hear about your inspiration for writing it. When did you decide that you were going to write a memoir? And how did you know that you were going to center it on your childhood growing up in Sri Lanka? So I think I had a pretty uh, unusual childhood. I was a Muslim. We are about 8% of the population in a Buddhist majority country. Um, I went to a Christian school run by Irish nuns. And my favorite teacher was a Hindu. So I think even when I was growing up and I had these friendships with people from all over, I began to observe that a culture and a family culture or the community culture has an impact on the human, on my friends. You know, they did things differently. And that's been a kind of a, almost an obsessive interest of mine. So when I became a counselor, that was up and front and center because you, in counseling, you get to know the culture. You have to get to know the culture. And so... I began, once I began my work here, which is almost about 25 years ago, I began to see the stark differences between the culture that I came from and the culture that, you know, that my clients lived in. And 
I began, you know, when you move away from a community is when you really see it. Because when you're embedded, when you're living that life, you don't really see it. And I began to see it a little differently than I had before when I thought, oh, this is this, you know, this is a this is a culture that so represses women. I began to see that, yes, that was true. But there was also another side to it, which is that this is a culture that also supports uh, connection and community. So I felt like I wanted to write something about that to show both what I consider the strengths and also um, the shortcomings. And that inspired me to write the book. Well, yeah, so one thing you do so well that's not easy to execute is, is sprinkling into the memoir a lot of your feelings about the social and cultural pressures that impacted you as a girl. And you're, you're critical of the practices, especially the thing you refer to as being brought inside, mm -hmm. and also how girls' education was largely discontinued at age 15. But you really let the reader have their own feelings about all that to see what it was, was like for you and largely to experience it alongside you. So I was wondering if you, if you could talk a bit about the art of doing that kind of showing and whether you made conscious choices not to be didactic. Yes. Well, partly I think I didn't want to, to be the one who made, uh, you know, to make the reader come to, you know, like conclude that this was bad or good. And I think, you know, writing a memoir for somebody from my community and my generation is a very difficult thing because family loyalty is very, you know, underpins community. And right from the beginning, I thought one of the ways that I can go ahead and do this is if I take every precaution I can to be as fair as possible. The people I write about are not able to defend themselves, right? And that's an ethical reason to be fair. But the craft reason is that I think it makes for more complex characters and a more complex uh, situation if you don't do the binary of this is all good and this is all bad, you know, and it doesn't engage the reader as much either. So I think I felt like the only way I could do it is don't tell the reader this is all good or this is all bad. Just just describe what it is and let them come to their own conclusion, you know. So there's a line, I can't remember who said it, to give the reader the pleasure of inference, of inferring instead of being told. So I, And I kept that line. Uh, oh, that's Zinsler, you know, in oh. writing well, he says, you know, allow the reader the pleasure of inference. And I thought, if I can do that, I will. I love that. Yeah, well, well done. And an important reminder for all writers of uh, this kind of story. And and in your book, there's a twist at the end having to do with your father. I won't give mm -hmm. it away because I hope people will read the book. Uh, and he's a complicated character. I mean, he's someone who you clearly want your reader to know and love before we have to grapple with his many flaws. Mm -hmm. And and most of which I saw stemming from him being a man born into that time, culture and faith. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you make it hard to judge him. And I mean that in a good way, because we see so well, like how his faith guides his decision making, and you're his only girl, and he makes all these concessions for you. And so on the one hand, I felt like he's this really enlightened character. Uh, and on the other hand, he makes, you know, choices that I think are very aligned with your culture. And so I'm curious, was your father still alive when you left Sri Lanka? And if so, will you tell us a little bit about that? And, um, you know, especially given that the title of the book is Stay Daughter, and of course, you left. Yes. He was alive when I left Sri Lanka with my husband nearly 40 years ago, but he's not now. And I did, didn't want to write the book when he was alive. I didn't want him to have to, you know, he doesn't read that much English to have 
to read the book, but still I wanted to spare him anything that he might feel. But um, he, he was devastated that I came to the United States because, once again, you know, I was his only daughter. But this is, you know, that this is a change that's sweeping across the Muslim world right now. Um, you know, how much freedom women should have and whether they should stay or whether they, should, whether they can leave. And um, I feel like my father was caught in that. He was just, you know, he, he, he was one of those people who was caught in that time when he wasn't ready for his daughter's leaving. But society and the community had changed that a lot of daughters were leaving. Uh, Yasmin, your book covers a particular period of time from the time you're a very little girl until you go off to university, which was uncommon for girls in Sri Lanka during that time. And, and so I'd like to ask you about the mindset it takes to write about that coming of age theme. You know, you're, you're a little girl, then an adolescent, then a budding adult as we walk through the scenes of this book alongside you. So what were some of your strategies for remembering or putting yourself back into that time and place? Uh, one thing is, you know, because I, you know, we have a close knit community, I was able to talk to elder, my elders and say, what was this like for you? And how did this happen? So I had that advantage. Uh, but I think I probably modeled myself. I read many, many memoirs, you know, Michael Ondaatje, his running in the family and other well written memoirs. And I modeled myself, I tried to model the writing, you know, how do you do this? And um, there's also somebody, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name, who has said you can do perhapsing, you know, mm -hmm. like you don't know what, but, so you don't say this happened, but perhaps this is how it turned out. And that's a very, um, I think, a very good sort of bit of craft tip to have because you don't want to make up things in a memoir. But you don't want to say, well, if I don't know it, then I'm just going to give you this flat piece of information and that's all I have. You can do some research. You can talk to people. I, I, that's what I did. And say, perhaps this is how it worked out. I love perhapsing. I've never heard that before. And it's such a great strategy. Oh, you haven't. Yeah, it's in a, in a, in a great verb. Well, you write a lot about family. You mentioned that. And of course, then you went on to be um, a counselor. But you, you've also written about and talked about how Southeast Asian cultures um, and others, to be sure, but, but yours specifically, think of family in much more of an extended way than a lot of Americans do. Uh, and in fact, you recently wrote an article that you shared with me. So I know it's close to your heart. And I um, just wanted to bring that up, you know, because I noticed that in your book, you have a cast of characters at the beginning. And so it, I thought that also spoke to your desire to support readers to understand and know this extended family. So could you talk a bit about how your understanding and experience of family informs you as a person and as a writer? As a writer, I began to sort of see family in a way that, you know, you, as I said, when I grew up, I thought this was family and this is how it is everywhere. Then when I moved to the United States, and especially when I became a mental health counselor, I was able to look back and say, this is not always how families work. You know, that, that the, you know, somebody stated, in, you know, that the boundaries are very sharply drawn in, 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 the mod, in modern and Western cultures between who belongs to your family and what is family. And I, looking back, I said, okay, so this is different. And here's, you know, in, in some ways, here's where the, uh, for me, uh, the, the conflict comes. So if I draw the boundary or if I think of family exactly as my father had thought of it, I would not do anything that he didn't ask, he told me not to do. I, you know, because that's how you, you know, you're brought up in, in, in very traditional societies. So 
So I felt like, no, I can love people, I can connect to them, but I can also carve out a small part of, you know, my own life. I don't have to be bound entirely by the very traditional conservative um, notion of family. And uh, so I've tried to sort of strike a balance between my newfound notions of family and the one that I grew up in. Yeah, and I think that that cross section's really interesting in terms of the question I have for you. And that's, um, you, know, you, you mentioned that you you know didn't want your father to read this, and and a lot of memoirists struggle with what to share and what to tell, and the potential backlash from family. And it, and that reminds me, or this your story reminds me of of we interviewed Firuze Dumas, uh, and she's a Persian writer. And one of the things she talked about was what was duty to family and how that meant that even the most innocuous things she wrote were seen by other Persians as disrespectful to her family at times. Mm-hmm. So I am curious, did you experience anything like this or worry about this and how you chose to portray either your family or Sri Lanka or the Muslim faith more broadly? Right. So not so much with my family, because my family are all almost all liberal thinkers and they're pretty westernized we you know and uh, not all of them are observant muslims anymore but uh, what i did who was not very happy was the people of the faith who thought that perhaps i had portrayed the fa- the islam uh, more uh, negatively than it really was and i over there too i tried to be fair i tried to sort of show that the prophet uh, Muhammad had made some reformations that advanced women's rights in, in in his time, but my thing is that was that was an advancement for his time, but not but what we see as Muslim culture today is certainly not, not advanced. But I did get quite a bit of backlash from the community. But um, I'm full of quotes today, but it is seen that a writer's task is to, you know, disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. <laughs> so I felt like if I, if I wrote something that everybody would like, I would write nothing at all that's worthwhile, right? So I, I made that choice. Though I, it wasn't an easy choice, but I decided, you know, if I didn't do it, then my writing would be just not worth reading. All of your quotes are resonating with me. Thank so, you. Thank you. <laughs> Same, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I've read a lot of books by Muslim writers, but I have never read one by a Sri Lankan writer. And so it was just interesting mm-hmm. to position you there. And um, I, I wanted to ask you particularly um, in closing about your epilogue appropriately, uh, you know, and you reflect on the girls in Sri Lanka now. Um, and there's been progress, but there's also been a lot of backlash. And you write specifically that women were leaving behind a lot of traditional roles, but then then recently there's been a resurgence um, of pressure, right, to be more isolated, to wear the burqa. Yes. Um, can you speak to whether this was, a, like these things were a motivation to write the book in the first place? That's yes. question one. And then maybe I'll save the very last question for after you answer that one. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Because, you know, I never wore the burqa. I didn't even wear a head scarf all the time. I just had a shawl. My gr- my mother had given up the burqa. My grandmother had given up the burqa. It's very interesting if you Google Afghanistan's uh, university students in the 1970s. There's a picture there with three girls in mini skirts in Kabul, in mini skirts, and Iran University in Tehran. They're seated on a wall, mini skirts. And where would you find that now? So there's been. Um, as I, I think a regression and part of 
my you know, one of the things I hope the reader will infer in my book is that there is a part of the community, at least I, the one that I know, that they are afraid of the slippery slope. They're saying, you know, you allow women to go out, then they go to school, they go to work. All across the Islamic world, divorce rates have shot up, skyrocketed. The marriage rates have come down, so much so that a few years ago in Saudi Arabia, the government was encouraging women, uh, people to marry Islam, the, it's the foundation of the religion is family and marriage, so that the government had to intervene. And so you know what happens with the Taliban, you know. they. And I feel that even in my community, there's a generation that's saying that the modernity is not working for us. As it, mm. The community uh, is not as stable as it was. Families are not as stable as it was. So... And I, I, I can't take this, oh, no, you know, when you become modern, everything is fine. That's not true. Right. So I think that that's how I think I try to be fair. I think, yes, you have a point, we want, but maybe we have to get we have to get a solution. But we're not dismissing, uh, you know, I'm not dismissing their fears. Yeah. And I, I want to commend you because I think you do straddle something quite profound, you know, which is being very fair and, and shedding a lot of light into this culture and, you know, the things that are true. And on the one hand, sort of saying these were the things that were uh, not okay for girls and women. And on the other hand, I think also very much honoring the things that are beautiful about it. And, um, and, and so to end on this another question about the epilogue, because there's, it's, it's not part of the coming of age journey. It's, it's rather like an adult perspective looking back. And I think that's an important choice and one that a lot of people who write coming of age memoirs want to do because it's like you end and you're just going off to school and you're still quite young. I mean, I think not even 20 yet. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just would love for you to speak to that a little bit for other, we have so many writers who listen, you know, and for people who are writing coming of age memoirs, how did you make that decision? And, and also good job on making it so short because it was like, it felt like you wanted to say this little piece, but you didn't allow yourself to go on and on and on, you know, and I, I really appreciated the way that you handled it. So Yes, because, you know, without um, revealing what happened, I think that what happens at, at the end is so serious. And I felt that I couldn't just say, well, this is the story and now goodbye. I hope you enjoyed <laughs> it. I felt I owed it to the to the people who experienced it to say it's, that's not the stake I am. I'm not taking that stance. I want to, you know, acknowledge that this was very difficult for so many people and that um, if I can, I would repair something, but I don't think it's in my you know, in my power to do that. But that was mainly out of a sense of respect for those who had experienced a devastating, you know, loss. Mm. Yeah. Well, you'll leave us on that cliffhanger. I've never read a, well, maybe one other memoir I'm thinking of, like Mary Carr's Liars Club that has that big twist at the end. But uh, those two, yours and hers, come right up there at the, of something so unexpected. So people have to go out and read it. It's so good. Thank you, Yasmin. Thank you so much. And what an honor to be compared to Mary Carr. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Yasmin. This was a delight. Thank you, Grant. And thank you so much, Brooke and Grant, for this opportunity. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. Well, Brooke, this week's trend happens to be something that we deal with somewhat often, 
how do you pitch a podcast? And and we get a lot of pitches, of course, but I but I asked this question because one of our, our former podcast guests, the author Lee Stein, wrote a column about this topic based on her conversation with a podcast matchmaker, uh, Michelle Glogovac. And I, mean, I thought it'd be good to talk about because podcast pitching has become an increasingly relevant topic because authors love being on podcasts, I think. <laughs> uh, let's just start the conversation, Brooke, by what, what do you think are your top three things to keep in mind when pitching? Yeah, this was a good question and good food for thought for me. So I came up with uh, these three. Number one, make it personal. We just get way too many cookie cutter template pitches <laughs> that are like a wall of text or just a press release. That's the one that drives me the most crazy. Yeah. Um, I'm always much more drawn to the ones, of course, that let us know that they listen to the show or at least they know what our show is about. So there's that. Uh, number two is tell us what you would talk about on the show. What would your topic be? We're a thematic show, right? So people often fail to give any kind of context or information to that. So the best pitches are the ones that have said, I listened to you guys. This is what I want to talk about. Super helpful. And this again speaks to the fact that you know what we do. Uh, and it's clear to me that so many publicists and authors too are just throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks, right? But sometimes I don't even read those pitches. So just mm. a note to people who are looking to do that to think about that and then number three is to add links attachments headshot cover of the book and other media like I got a pitch just last week that had zero links zero so this means like if I want to know anything about this person I have to google her and we just get way too many pitches every week for that to happen so don't throw up those barriers to entry uh, is my biggest piece of advice on that front um and Grant tell us you know by contrast um i mean those are those are advice pieces but like what are some of the more uh things that you recommend not doing or that maybe rub you the wrong way when you get pitches yeah yeah I, I, you basically did the good and the bad in that answer mm -hmm. so that was good <laughs> but the first thing i you kind of mentioned this but the first thing that can turn me off is if i get an email that is just long and dense and written in a tiny font you know it's 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 i i know it's hard not to do a, a longish pitch especially if you have a complex topic or a lot of endorsements to include. But I think you really have to look to find ways to include subheads and organize the email so people can skim it because we all skim our emails. You know, we all only really want to read about a paragraph or so. And I also often see pitches that are very braggy or salesy in tone. And I, I don't know a single human being who responds to bragging or salesy <laughs> tone. So just tell the facts as if you're, you know, telling your mother or your best friend about your book and, and let your work and your position in the world speak for itself. And then it's always evident when somebody has never listened to your podcast, you know, especially if they're, they're pitching a book that has nothing to do with the topic the podcast regularly covers. You, you mentioned that, but I was just dreaming up uh, a worst case scenario pitch about uh, how to fix 1973 Volkswagens, you know, and, <laughs> and, and we might get something like that, honestly, but unless there's a fascinating creative process behind that book. It, you know, it's not going to make the cut. Right. That's such a good point. And Michelle Glogovac wrote in that piece with uh, Lee Stein or, or Lee Stein wrote about Michelle, uh, this quote, the not so secret way to pitch yourself to podcasts as an author is to be willing to use topics that aren't only about your book. And then she also said, podcasts are a great way to allow people to get to know you. So consider pitching your journey to writing your book, your creative process, how your real life experiences were intertwined with your characters. All great advice. And this is the kind of thing that I'm definitely looking for, you know, uh, and I just want to say a quick note on the whole bragging 
thing because you know sometimes people are doing your bragging for you like I remembering that pitch that we got Grant that was like I think it was his publicist or his handler who knows but he was like you're gonna miss out on the chance of a lifetime and then he called uh, the guy he was working for a unicorn (laughs) and I was like hmm is that really working for you guys Uh, maybe in some contexts but again uh, know your audience know your hosts yeah uh, and going back to, to that, making your, your journey story, you know, relevant angle, you one good, good piece of advice um, that Michelle gave was to research the podcasts that are relevant to your book. And that can be dizzying and daunting because there are so many. And then it's hard to tell how many, you know, it's hard to tell how many listeners a podcast gets. So you don't truly know how popular it is sometimes. But but since my books are either fiction or how to write fiction, I actually go to to hubs on the internet like Lit Hub Radio, which distributes our podcast, to see who is in their family of podcasts. And I always find several good ones I, I didn't previously know about. And one tip uh, that was new to me from Michelle was to search podcasts through hashtags. So, for example, for Instagram, search using hashtags such as hashtag grief podcast. I'd never thought of that, but that's really cool. And Michelle also recommends a type of stalking, meaning checking out the host and the show's social media accounts as well, uh, because that'll allow you to get to know the host or hosts in our case, and maybe you'll find something that you can relate to on a personal level. And on this note, she says to open you know, your, your, your pitch with an episode that resonates and to be specific. So don't simply say, I loved your interview with Brooke Warner. Give details on what you loved, how you used what you learned from the interview, a moment in your life where you shared a similar experience, something like that. And this is a moment when you you should be showing that you not only listen, but you actually care and put in the time to do your research. Yeah, I do look at the pitches from the people who do that, you know, who will say something like, I listened to the recent episode on this one or with this author, and this is what I loved. And it's not just because we're wanting to know that you listen to the show, you know, but it's really like that you get it and that you would be a good guest and that you make sense for us and what we want to talk about. Um, and then the final piece of advice, Grant, is just a word on the art of the follow up, uh, because I do think it's appropriate to follow up, and I would say probably three times. And then after that, I think you should probably assume that it's a no-go. I mean, I do try to get back to people, Grant, but we get a lot of pitches. And then we primarily go after our guests rather than taking those who land in our inboxes. And so we don't take a lot through the slush submissions, as it were. Um, and, And then when you follow up, I would say that that same art of the pitch applies, you know, maybe something new, like, oh, I just listened to the most recent episode and I'm following up, you know, something to that effect. Uh, And the bottom line is just that pitching does obviously take time. You know, everything we're saying here is some research. Uh, It's also an art and uh, it can also be quite competitive, as Grant noted. So keep at it. And I want to say like chin high, if you don't get invited, use the release of, you know, a new or subsequent book project down the road to go back to the well. If you got rejected before, don't take that as a hard no. Uh, And, you know, I just want to take this moment to thank anyone who's ever pitched us because I'm sure you're out there. Uh, We know it's work and it's also a risk and working and risking as part of being an author. It's a good exercise. Um, And that's why we're working and risking ourselves, Grant, and reminding ourselves to do so and others to do so. So thanks, everybody. Thanks for being loyal listeners. And we'll be back in your queue next week.